hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. This has been an incredible week of developments in the COVID-19 pandemic response, and I want to bring you right up to date with a recent announcement from the U.S. Surgeon General colleague and friend, Dr. Dr. Joe Ledepo. Florida Department of Health is going to uh, be the first state to officially recommend against the COVID-19 vaccines for healthy children. For making that totally common sense and science-based announcement, Florida Surgeon General Joseph Lapido was viciously attacked by the usual COVID fanatics. And he joins me now. Dr. Ladapo, excuse me, good to see you tonight. I want you to hear the White House's reaction to your announcement today. Watch. We know the science, uh, we know the data, uh, and what works. It's deeply disturbing that there are politicians peddling conspiracy theories out there and casting doubt on vaccinations when it is our best tool against the virus and the best tool to prevent even teenagers from being hospitalized. Dr. Ladapo, you're a Harvard-educated doctor, and she called you a politician peddling conspiracy theories. Your reaction? Yeah, I didn't know that uh, that I was a politician or that I was peddling conspiracy theories. All that time, I thought I was asking an important question that I actually wish more doctors and public health officials would ask, which is, do the benefits of vaccinating healthy children for COVID-19, many of whom have already had COVID, people, many of whom are, almost all of whom are very low risk, do those benefits outweigh the risk? That's the, that's the important question. Well, Dr. Ladapo, CNN trotted out a vaunted expert to refute your VAX recommendation. Watch this. That anti-science propaganda really is deadly. And we know that any COVID infection can lead to long COVID. And as long as that is true, we need to be doing what is in our best interest to prevent all COVID infections. Well, Dr. Ladefa, she's obviously one little detail wrong. The vaccines, you know, we've seen don't necessarily prevent you from getting the virus, correct? Or am I missing something? No, Laura. Laura, I'm just going to break this down in a very simple way. So you're right. The the media has been hysterical about our announcement. And the argument that you hear is that, well, you know, the vaccines and the COVID vaccines in, in children reduce the risk of hospitalization. We're not denying that. We're not. That's not the point that we're that we're discussing. It's part of the, the question that really should be asked, which is it's not about whether or not it reduces the risk of hospitalization. The question is about whether it's the right decision for the patient in front of you. So the considerations for that include the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these children, in fact, most of the children based on CDC data, have already had COVID-19. Do any data indicate that well, children who've had COVID-19 who are healthy have any clinical benefit from COVID-19 no. vaccination? No, no, There's no, no data that shows that. No, I, I want to bring up. I want to bring up another issue, which is this 38-page report that the um, 
children's uh, health defense uh, group has um, discussed because they said they have documents from Pfizer and the FDA on the COVID vaccine itself. They were forced to release them. This 38-page report included in the documents features an appendix and a list of adverse events of special interest. It includes 1,291 different adverse events following vaccination. Dr. Ladapo, we reached out to Pfizer to confirm the issue with these documents. We haven't heard back. Either way, it seems like the medical establishment has been downplaying the negative side effects from COVID vaccines, everything from kidney issues, uh, brainstem embolisms, thrombosis, uh, cardiac uh, events, we know myocarditis, neonatal natal death. I mean, there are all sorts of uh, negative side effects in this report, and yet nobody wants to talk about them. Why is that? You know, I mean, I think it's frankly because we've had so much science that has, instead of staying, staying in the scientific lane, has decided to enter the propaganda lane. So it's like, whatever's good, we'll talk about. Whatever's not so good, we'll ignore. And we're not going to do that in Florida. The data are the data. Show me the data that show that the benefits outweigh the risks in healthy children, and we will happily revise our policy. But those data don't exist because it's a big question mark for healthy children. That's the truth. Those are the facts. And, you know, people yeah. who say that you still should do it, you need to ask themselves what, you know, what's their objective? Because our objective is to do the best we can for the children in Florida. Well, I think that's admirable and correct. I also think that the questions always arise when there's a lack of transparency. Why didn't Pfizer put this information out initially? Why didn't China come clean on their role in all the documents and the data early on? These are... These are serious questions, and we still don't have answers to this. Dr. Ladapo, thank you so much. Great to see you. That was Laura Ingram, and that was on the Ingram angle. I was actually lined up to be on the show in case Dr. Ladapo couldn't make it. There's a last-minute switch, and I'm really glad he went on because he's the one who led the courageous meeting in Florida with Governor Ron DeSantis, key advisors, many people in my circles and your circles attended, they got the right advice, and they made a courageous decision, the first decision across the United States. And boy, our parents in Florida relieved. You can see that the response from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, as well as public health expert that CNN had on with Jake Tapper, which was Chris Purnell, they paid no attention to safety of the products. They paid. They literally said, we know the science, and this is best for children without any consideration of serious complications, such as vaccine-induced myocarditis or heart inflammation, which can be fatal. Earlier uh, in the last uh, week cycle, since the last McCullough report, there was historic uh, Senate testimony in the State House of Pennsylvania that was led in a bipartisan uh, a panel, both senators and congressmen in Pennsylvania, and uh, this was chaired by Senator Doug Mastriano of Pennsylvania. Let's listen in to a, key, a few key points made by the presenters. But when we put the drugs together in sequence combination, you can see my point that this is very effective. In all the deaths that reported, in all the hospitalizations reported in the United States, 
There is never a mention of early treatment, including the NIH study. Never. Hospitalization and death in the United States as a composite, and particularly hospitalization, which precedes the deaths, is a product of insufficient treatment. It is not a reflection of vaccination or unvaccination. It is a product of insufficient treatment. In fact, vaccinated patients and unvaccinated patients, we treat them the same because the illness is the same. This was uh, the state house in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I can tell you, if any of you have ever been there, it's one of the most beautiful government buildings that exist in America. And next up is a comment regarding inpatient treatment from Dr. Brian Artis, who's an outspoken retired chiropractic physician who sadly lost a close relative to remdesivir-induced acute kidney injury. Let's listen into what Dr. Artis says about inpatient care and the use of remdesivir. Now, Dr. Artis is positioned in the Senate meeting room next to Dr. Shamami Wheeler, who's a courageous pediatrician who has really risked her career on the issue of vaccine safety and early treatment. She's sitting right next to Artis. Let's see what Artis says about the inpatient use of remdesivir, of which he really has become an analytic expert. Guess what's the only listed drug FDA approved for hospitalized Americans? Remdesivir. When it is published by the World Health Organization to cause increased acute kidney failure compared to all other drugs being used in the world when treating COVID-19. So you have kidney failure, liver failure, now heart failure being caused by remdesivir, published to do so. Two months later, your NIH, the FDA, still sits back and goes, this is the only approved drug for hospitalized COVID-19 patients. You know what's more disgusting? January 21st of this year, the FDA extended an emergency use authorization and said there's now only one authorized medication that can be pumped into the veins of all newborns in this country to 18-year-old pediatric age-ranged children, starting with seven-pound newborns. Guess what the only authorized drug to treat COVID-19 children is now? In hospitals and outside. Remdesivir. You can hear the tension in his voice. This is deeply personal. This is a drug that is frankly unsafe. It causes acute kidney injury. You know, I have over 500 peer-reviewed publications showing acute kidney injury clearly contributes in a pathway to death across all age ranges. Remdesivir over the course of five days causes severe hepatic damage. The World Health Organization in 2020 advises against its use because it's ineffective with COVID-19. More deaths occur with remdesivir than placebo, yet American hospitals continue to give remdesivir without any compunction. Next is Steve Kirsch. Steve Kirsch is the founder and funder of the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund and now the Vaccine Injury Treatment Fund. And Steve has really become an analytic expert on the VAR system, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. I've had Steve before on the McCullough Report. You'll listen to his voice. Let's hear what Steve tells the Pennsylvania senators and congressmen. The VAR system has been flashing red alert, red alert since January. I offered a million dollars to people from the outside committee of the CDC and the FDA just to come to the table and have a, have a conversation with me about the evidence. And when they refused the million dollars, I said, okay, name your price. Is 5 million, 10 million, 
100 million? What will it take for us to have a civil di a discussion on the record, on the record, on recorded, where we can go through the evidence in the VARA system and other pieces of data so that we can have an open discussion about this? There's no amount of money that you could pay them to compensate them for their time. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I want to put in a word about long COVID syndrome. It's well known that severe COVID-19 illness requiring hospitalization has about a 50% chance of long COVID syndrome, meaning some residual symptoms along the lines of neurologic, brain fog, loss of taste and smell, ear ringing or tinnitus, there can be peripheral neuropathies, cerebral or cerebellar syndromes, and patients feel generally unwell. Very common component of this is sleep disturbance, weight loss, and loss of neuromuscular function and abilities. This is very disconcerting to patients. It's related to the severe infection, and there's no doubt about it, it's a catabolic strain. Enter healthy cell. We know that at this point in time, the gastrointestinal tract is not working normally. We know that the virus does influence the gastrointestinal tract as shown through a multitude of studies. Patients are nutritionally depleted. They've gone through a prolonged illness. There's catabolic strain. Sometimes there's actually loss of hair and, and skin and nail changes. Healthy Cell provides a broad product line that meets the needs of long COVID patients. There's no doubt about it. The gel pack micronutrient technology allows for absorption even when the GI tract is not functioning properly. The blend of nutraceuticals, including vitamins and minerals, is key, and they're well positioned. There's the focus and memory product that specifically addresses uh, brain fog. There is the immune, immune boost or the immune system recovery product of which the body does need enhanced immunity. Why? Because the virus is trying to be uh, cleared by the body's phagocytic system and we need boosting of the human immune system and this healthy cell product is there to do that. And then finally, sleep disturbance. We know that the best way to achieve a high quality sleep is to get full REM sleep and supplements help. In fact, the Healthy Cell REM sleep supplement is the lead supplement in the entire world in improving the quality of sleep. Most sleep medications help what's, uh, influence a parameter called pressure. That is the pressure to fall asleep. That's not what Healthy Cell does. What Healthy Cell does it is it improves the quality of the sleep. And I tell my patients, take all of these supplements, these three supplements, take them daily without missing a day. And don't expect a change within a day or two. Expect changes to slowly start to effectuate in the human body over the course of several days and then weeks. And the average patient needs three, six, or nine months, even more of healthy, healthy cell therapy, basically, to treat the long COVID syndrome. There are no prospective randomized trials of drugs to treat long COVID syndrome. Are doctors like myself using empiric therapy? Yes. 
Do nutraceuticals and supplements, particularly the healthy cell line, make a giant difference? Absolutely. So please consider healthy cell. If you are suffering from long COVID syndrome, consider this. Go to healthycell.com and in the promo code, type in out loud for 20% off your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. From the uh, state capitol house in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, let's hear from lead attorney Tom Rents, who's led so many important initiatives, including the uh, CMS whistleblower lawsuit for vaccine mortalities, and now <clears throat> the U.S. military whistleblower case on the Department of Defense DMED, or Epidemiological Database, and COVID-19 vaccination. Tom was sitting right next to me in the front row of the Senate building room. One of the great blessings I've received is that a number of whistleblowers from various walks of life have brought me just incredible information. The DMED data is from the Defense Medical Epidemiological Database. This is the premier database in the universe. Young, healthy soldiers see an almost a 300% increase in cancer over a thousand percent increase in neurological issues at 2000 plus percent in hypertension we need to start following esteemed doctors like dr mccullough here dr malone and all the all the people that i'm working with these guys are heroes they're speaking out at risk to their personal reputation their licenses they're not making money meanwhile uh, fauci gates the these tech billionaires they're making more money than than anyone on the planet off of this they're getting accolades in the media. Who do you trust? Do you trust someone who I can demonstrate is a liar? Or do you trust the people who are putting their neck out to try and save lives? I can tell you with that, Tom is on fire. And he's right. So many of us have stuck our neck out. And the real question on the table is who else is going to take some personal risks in order to get this ship righted? Who else is going to step out and take personal and professional casualty in order to preserve our freedoms. You can see our freedoms are being etched away. They are being propagandized away through this first wave of COVID-19 respiratory illness and the suppression of early treatment and the negative impacts of forced hospital treatments. And now through the adverse events that are blossoming after COVID-19 vaccination, both fatal and non-fatal. Uh, we have a situation where I can encourage, in fact, I am imploring each and every one of you listening, step out of your box and make some courageous moves in your life. And please don't try to just save your own skin with the next exemption form or the next uh, uh, type of professional move that you'll make in order to basically lay low while others are taking heavy fire out there. Fortunately, the bullets aren't flying right now, but they could fly in the future unless each and every one of you step up. I've had discussions with attorneys and so many more out there. And the question I ask is, how many of you have personally taken a risk in order to preserve freedom for all of us? Please think about that. I think it's very important. It's going to come up over and over again. Boy, with that, I think all of us need a little stress relief. And this came in to me from the artist himself, Chadley Bressfield. And let's hear just a, you know a few minutes of a little relief with this wonderful song 
again by Chadley Bresfield. Send it in to me personally, and I love it when I get the music from the original artists. Chadley Brassfield. The title of the song is Power, and it's really about what happens when the power goes out. In many ways, it's a stress relief because we can't do all the things that we're doing, including working on the McCullough Report on the computer, if all the power goes out. And certainly uh, last year in Dallas, Texas, we had about a week of that. And so we learned about the power going out and what we do when we're back with just our loved ones and our relatives uh, trying to stay warm and get through whatever the next challenges that we face. 
Um, I want to let you know that on the second half of the McCullough Report, on the back side, uh, we do have a charged interview. So I want to set the stage for you. I uh, had started reaching out and communicated with Dr. Dawn Michael. Uh, Dr. Michael is a PhD. Uh, she lives in California and she has a personal story to tell. And I, I think you're going to find it disturbing. I think you're going to find it charged, uh, but she has consented uh, to do this. She is going to tell the tale of herself and her husband, Dr. Abilio Ramos. Dr. Ramos is one of our C-19 early treating doctors. Dr. Ramos is an American hero. And I can tell you, Dr. Ramos, like myself and so many doctors in my circles, saw and examined COVID-19 patients, and he had a tremendous exposure to COVID-19. Don is going to tell the story about how both of them contracted COVID-19. Now, part of this story has to do with context. And I can tell you so many people in late 2019 and in early 2020 had severe respiratory illnesses, particularly in December, January, and February. And many individuals, myself included, actually thought we had COVID-19. Uh, and I'll tell you personally, in February of 2020, I took a trip to California. I was in LA County and Orange County and, and COVID-19 was starting to take off in California at that time. And I developed a severe respiratory uh, illness with a very high fever and chest pain. And I distinctly remember thinking that in fact, this could be COVID-19. No testing was available at that time. Uh, I had a cough after that respiratory illness easily for a month because I remember going through major meetings in March and I kept telling people at the time, uh, you, you know, I'm not infectious, I'm coughing. I think maybe I had it uh, a month ago and everyone looked uh, very wary when they saw me coughing. But I, just like Dr. Michael, and just like Dr. Ramos, I thought I had COVID-19 very early in 2020 before the advent of widely available PCR testing and later on antigen testing. I personally was burned by this. I thought I had had it. So therefore, I thought I couldn't actually get COVID-19. Lo and behold, in October of 2019, both my wife and I developed COVID-19. We developed the illness. Uh, my wife had no problem with prompt recognition and prompt initiation of early treatment, and I fought it. I thought that I didn't have COVID-19. I couldn't register the symptoms properly. And so there was a delay in recognition. In my case, it was also a delay in onset of symptoms. Fortunately, both my wife and myself uh, became enrolled in an FDA-approved multi-drug COVID-19 treatment protocol that was fully sanctioned by the FDA. And at that time, it featured hydroxychloroquine, nutraceuticals and supplements, azithromycin, and sequence combination. Later on, I developed pulmonary involvement and required the additional use of uh, prednisone. I additionally was involved in a large randomized trial with the use of colchicine versus placebo. I later on learned that I had received placebo in that clinical trial. That's just how it goes. So I got over COVID-19. The total duration of my symptoms and ultimately resolution of my chest symptoms was about 35 days. That was consistent. 
but I want you to listen to what happens to both Dr. Michael and Dr. Ramos as they develop COVID-19 and as they become progressively sick enough at home. And this was in December of 2021, almost certainly one of the later cases of the Delta variant. The story is harrowing. The story is heartbreaking. Why don't you join us on the other side for the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is the McCullough Report. Along with a healthy immune system, clean air is vital for optimal health. According to the EPA, we spend 90% of our time indoors, where germs are most concentrated. It's essential to clean indoor air. Genesis is the only technology that quickly, safely, and effectively kills pathogens both in the air and on surfaces in seconds, reducing the viral load in any environment. The powerful, well-built Genesis Fogger produces a dry, ultra-fine mist using HOCL, which occurs naturally in our own immune systems. We'll be living with airborne diseases in the future. New viruses and antibiotic-resistant superbugs are no problem for Genesis. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Visit genesisfogger.com. America Out Loud listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code OUTLOUD at genesisfogger.com slash OUTLOUD. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. I'm excited to talk about a new product from Healthy Cell, AC11. This is a patented bioactive extract of Uncaria tomentosa from the Amazon rainforest. It supports cell DNA repair and health span. It's a dietary supplement. I'm excited to try it. Many are interested in longevity and attenuation of senescence. We know that telomere length and other uh, biologic measures are related to senescence in uh, 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 clinical and uh, preclinical studies, particularly of animal models. And I can tell you as a doctor, dietary supplements do hold the promise of attenuating repair and damage in our body due to stress, physical wear and tear, sunlight, etc. And there's a tremendous opportunity for supplements to help us in this area. And so Healthy Cell has brought a product to market for you to try as part of your health portfolio. So please go to HealthyCell.com and in the promotional code, list out loud for 20% off your first purchase of products from Healthy Cell. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11, a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, 
taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a privilege to welcome to the other side of the microphone, Dr. Dawn Michael. Dr. Michael received her bachelor's degree in communications from uh, California uh, State University, and then went on to uh, receive her master's degree in oral communications from Phillips. She uh, received her PhD in San Francisco in an interesting area in human sexuality and has additional certifications and she worked as a professional uh, for many years and still does work in this area. And um, Don was married to a family physician and he was uh, in all respects a hero in the early treatment of COVID-19. He had sacrificed uh, much in his practice to care for patients with COVID-19 using early innovative programs. And I asked Don to come on uh, because so many of our listeners have been through COVID themselves. They've lost family members due to COVID and I have too, um, but this one is personal and this one is proximal. And Dr. Michael has um, carried herself admirably in the most difficult of time. Don, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you for having me on. Um, I appreciate the platform so that I could get the story out and help other people that are going through, um, unfortunately, the same thing that I've been through. Well, why don't you take us back to December of 2021 when uh, your late husband contracted COVID, almost certainly the Delta variant? Well, it presented itself as the flu because we had both had COVID prior and he had been seeing patients for almost two years and been treating them uh, with his own protocol. And he had been saving many lives. Um, he had nine patients hospitalized and he had been basically their patient advocate, which is very important to point out because he was their patient advocate as a medical doctor, sending them to the hospital, the hospitalist did what he wanted. And this is something that my husband thought he was going to get when he went to the hospital. Unfortunately, it didn't happen that way. So again, the nine patients that my husband sent to the hospital all came back, all survived, and they did not have the hospital protocol. So on December 21st, um, my husband came down with a very high fever and lasted for about three days. And again, it presented itself as a flu. So he didn't take ivermectin. Um, I did give him vitamins and so on and so forth, but he didn't treat himself like he would one of his patients. And after three days, it, it kind of subsided for a day or two. And then he went out sailing because he thought that he was better, came back and then it just hit him so hard where he just couldn't breathe. Um, understanding that it attacked the lower lungs. And so he went out and he got an oxygen tank 
and he started to take the oxygen at home. But we came to the point where it just wasn't enough. So I'd say day seven, I had to rush him to the ER. Um, I rushed him to Las Robas Hospital. This is a hospital that he had done surgery at in the 90s. And so many of the staff knew him. And of course, the doctors knew him because that's where he sent his patients. Now, Don, Don can, you, can I just interrupt and yeah. have you summarize what was the pre-hospital treatment? Can you, uh, is it possible for you to name the drugs uh, that he had before going in the hospital? Um, okay, so he didn't treat himself until day five or day six. So he started... He started taking antibiotics. He started taking steroids, the vitamins and ivermectin. And I think that was what he was taking. Let me ask you something. Why such a late start, do you think? I just don't think he thought he had COVID. You know, I had the same thing happen to me. When I developed COVID, um, I had a situation where I was out in California early in 2020. I had a severe respiratory illness. I thought I had previously had COVID. I really did. And uh, I had a lot of exposure to COVID through 2020 and nothing happened. And when my number got dialed up and I actually did get COVID, I was delayed. I didn't think I had it because I I thought I was previously immune when in fact I wasn't. And uh, that's the reason why uh, this kind of assumption that it's the second case, I don't think it's a safe assumption unless it's really clinically proven that you had the first case. Um, and uh, just a point of observation so people can learn, uh, unless it's really nailed down, that first case was a clinical case and you've got confirmatory testing and you really have it down. All these suspected cases, late 2019, early 2020, as severe as they were, and I had one of them, I was out in California and that's where it was popping. Um, uh, I, I wonder about being, being misled with this assumption that you previously had it? It's difficult be- because he was seeing so many patients that had COVID and he hadn't, he hadn't contracted it from them. So that may be true, but also I think being a doctor and being exposed all the time, I think he assumed that he had the natural antibodies. So I don't know if the Delta was a completely different, I don't know. Well, Delta was not, you know, previous immunity held up against Delta. There's a recent paper by Alejo and colleagues from Johns Hopkins in JAMA, it's a very useful paper, that uh, study people like, like your late husband. And those who had COVID, and it was proven by PCR antigen testing, you know, these solid cases, 99% of them had neutralizing antibodies. Those were suspected cases, but you couldn't prove it because you didn't have a test back then or couldn't get a test. Uh, the rate of actually having the protective antibodies was 55%. And those who never had COVID, never thought they had COVID, the rate of the, these antibodies was 11%. So I think that study was useful in this kind of assessment of what happened. In fact, the Delta for him may have been the very first time. And people ask the question, Don, well, how come I had all this exposure and I didn't get it? Part of it has to do probably with the degree of protection the microbiome and the nasopharynx offers, which does change uh, uh, from time to time. And then part of it's probably inoculum or the amount of dosing. Mm-hmm. He may have just had that last exposure 
for the first time, he may have had a big dose of it. And that, mm-hmm. that may have happened, but keep going. So he ends up in the hospital. Take us from there. So I end up rushing him to the ER. I get to the ER. Of course, they won't let me in. Um, he is admitted. And then I think I got one text from him that said it was like a war zone in there. And I know that it was because I went in a few days later. But what happened is the ER was so insane because they said they had no beds. But indeed, that was not the truth. They had plenty of beds. They just had a skeleton staff because they fired everyone. So when he ended up getting a bed, he ended up going into ICU. Um, They didn't vent him, but they did put a heavy mask on him. And when I looked at the um, medical records, they said he looked mildly ill, which was really interesting because seven days going in to mildly ill to end up passing on the ninth, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up to me. But in any event, he was getting better the first couple of days, was in ICU. um, And on the third day, they moved him up to the third floor. And he was basically on the third floor, they had A, B, and C, and he was in A, which is a little more critical. And he was slowly getting better, but they had been giving him remdesivir. And I had told him, please do not let them give you remdesivir. And I don't think he thought that they were giving him remdesivir. And in fact, he said they were giving him something else with an O, but none of the nurses would get back to me in the first two days. Finally, the nurses got back to me on the third day. And indeed, they were giving him the remdesivir. Um, A couple more days passed, so I think they gave him five doses. I ended up getting sick. I ended up going into the hospital. I ended up having the same horrible experience in the um, ER. It was insanity. Again, once I was wheeled up to the third floor, there was like nobody there. It was like a ghost town. Plenty of beds, but just very, very little staff. Um, they had given me remdesivir for the first two days. I didn't know. I did not consent to it. I was just given it. Uh, every single day, um, my husband and I were on the same floor. Think about this. We're on the same floor. They would not let us see each other. And the scary thing about this is the doctor that was treating both of us has known my husband for 20 years. The nurses knew my husband. So if people think that this can't happen to them, it can. And that's why I'm speaking out because this is a man who's highly respected in his community, who was the head of um, a school also, as well as his practice. Um, He just had patients for 35 years and he had worked at that hospital. So the fact that they wouldn't let us see each other, I know now is because they didn't want a patient advocate. So they could do whatever they want. And so when I found out they were giving me remdesivir after the two days, I spoke to the doctor same doctor that was seeing my husband. And I said to him, I do not want to be on this stuff. I had COVID five days prior. And he admitted that it doesn't work for people who had COVID five days prior. And I said to him, well, then why did you give it to my husband? He had COVID seven days prior. He didn't know what to say. And it actually is written in the um, documented in the report I got back. So To say that there isn't malpractice going on, to say that these doctors don't know what they're doing, I'm not sure about that. Now, Don, were you lucid? I mean, when when you said they gave you remdesivir, but you didn't know about it, it sounds like you were already keyed up about the dangers of remdesivir. Did did you question 
when the nurses hooked up the IV bags and stuff, or did you look up and see what was written there or were you kind of out of it? No, I was out of it. I was in the um, ER um, sitting in a ambulance for about three hours and then another two or three hours in the ER in a wheelchair with no water, no nurses, no nothing. And so once I got to the room, it was probably 12 o'clock at night. I already had the, um, they already had hooked me up in the ambulance. So they just hooked me up. I thought maybe they were giving me, I don't even know, because they didn't tell me. I was just out of it. And then they came in early in the morning when I was just waking up and they just put the medication in again. So finally, when I was fully awake and the doctor came in, I was livid. Like, what are you giving me? They didn't go over um, a treatment plan with me. Nothing, nothing like they would normally do. There was just no talking. Um, I don't even remember giving this doctor my full history, but if they had known my history, they would know that I had COVID five days prior. Now, did anybody come in the room to examine you or is it all done over uh, FaceTime or an iPad? No, they did take an x-ray of me. They tried to um, take a swab. I wouldn't let them for the COVID. And they did take my blood. So no, they came in in kind of like hazmat suits where they had their own, I don't know, oxygen hooked up in the back. Yeah, those are called PAPRs. Okay. um, uh, You know, that may be part of the problem is people just not, um, you know, sitting down and taking a proper history. Again, this this fear, even if someone's COVID recovered, the healthcare workers are still wearing PAPRs like these hazmat suits. Mm -hmm. So um, did either one of you get monoclonal antibodies as an outpatient? This is the horrifying aspect of it. We called probably 19 places to see if we could get the monoclonal antibodies. And right at that time, when everything was at the height of it, they were not offering it. We could not find it from any place. And interestingly enough, the infectious disease doctor that works at Las Robles Hospital that my husband personally knows, he even said to my husband that he had suggested for the hospital to get the monoclonal antibodies and that the hospital refused. Because with Delta at this time, the Regeneron monoclonal antibody product, of which there was still plenty of that available, was efficacious, but we also had the Sochirivimab, the GSK product, which was EUA approved since May. Mm-hmm. And I know clinically in my practice, I was using both. And then when um, Omicron shaded in, I used more Sochirivimab. Now we have a Lilly product, uh, uh, uh back on. So back to your husband. So he gets five doses of remdesivir. He's on uh, probably progressive amounts of oxygen. Take us from there. So they had reduced the oxygen from downstairs, um, but he was still on oxygen, just going in through his nose. He had actually taken the mask off. So it appeared that he was getting better within that five-day period. I think they had taken him off of antibiotics since he never should have been on since he had taken them. He was still taking his ivermectin, his vitamins, um, and they were giving him steroids, but not a great steroid. That's another issue. And I'm not sure the other stuff, but um, what happened is, I think it was, let me see. When I came into the hospital was about January 5th. I would say January 6th or 7th. 
just give it illness days. It's too hard to do date subtraction for our audience. So on day one of illness for him, what happened? I would say maybe seven days after the remdesivir, seven days after he had been there, he was on remdesivir for five days. He told me that his kidney was failing and um, that they were going to, you know, do something about it. And he wanted a specialist to come in. So I would say that he had already been there. This is, it's hard for me to remember how many days. Yeah, one of the things I want our listeners to understand is you have to put the story into days. So day one, you started having symptoms. And then on day X, you end up in the hospital. And then on day, you know, everything has to be in days. What patients always want to do is they want to keep giving you calendar dates and this and then dates for other dates. And I can tell you, as a doctor, I'm going to see 30 to 40 patients tomorrow. Boy, it has to be in days. So just kind of fast forward to the end. So he goes into renal failure after getting remdesivir. And does he go on dialysis? No, he doesn't go on dialysis. So let's just say we're at day 11. Okay. Day 11 of illness. Day 11 of illness. Um, okay. Now we're at towards the end. So he had been on renal failure probably day nine or day eight. Okay. They, um, he calls me and he's, he's not doing well. And he tells me he's going to have a specialist come in from the outside. He's very concerned, very, very concerned. And he says, I'm trying to survive at that point. And I, he hung up the phone for me and then he texted me, do you understand? And I understood, I understood that he wasn't going to make it because, um, you know, he was overweight and he had other issues. And now that his kidney was going, I just knew he wasn't going to make it. And they came in uh, on day 12 and they said at uh, one o'clock in the morning, your husband is now downstairs. He's in the ICU and he has been I guess, intubated or has the vented and I demanded that I go down and see him. They were not going to take me down there. And uh, I demanded and they finally came in and they got me and in the process he had passed away. So he had basically passed away from cardiac arrest and uh, liver, I mean, kidney failure. And so you were in the hospital as a COVID patient yourself. Your husband dies on the mechanical ventilator after developing renal failure and receiving five days of remdesivir. You had received remdesivir yourself. And I, what I want the audience to understand is that in the clinical trials program of remdesivir, more people die with remdesivir than they died with placebo. This was reviewed for America on January 24th by Dr. Paul Merrick, and Paul's been on the McCullough Report. He reviewed every trial, and it's clear remdesivir contributes to death. And that's the reason why the World Health Organization says don't use remdesivir. So hospitals that continue to give remdesivir are causing great harm. And this is this story is, um, and you're courageous to tell it to our listeners. This is an absolute tragic, tragic story. Dr. Michaels, what would you tell our audience now? We Let's hope and pray we're through the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and we don't have another variant uh, uh, down the line, but let's say the next severe patient with a late Delta case or Omicron case gets sick. 
what would be your advice? I absolutely think we need to fight for patient advocacy. We need to have family members in there. We need to have a patient advocate. People uh, need to be watching their loved ones. And I don't know how it's came about that we're not allowed to be with our loved ones, but this has to stop. It absolutely has to stop. And this idea that we are not going over what we're giving the patients, that the doctors aren't sitting with them, explaining the procedures. And, and, and also these protocols, they're just not there to help the patient. And in fact, the hospitals are getting paid for these protocols. They make money off of Desivere. They make money off of COVID deaths. They told me I had COVID pneumonia and then came back and said I had no pneumonia, still put down COVID pneumonia. So I think people just need to be aware that the hospitals, we need to be really proactive. And if you have a loved one going in there, you need to demand that you are there with them. And patient advocacy. And uh, even if you can't go in the room, uh, this idea of, of having it on file that someone needs to review every drug before they administer it. Even you were administered remdesivir mm -hmm. and you weren't aware of it. Um, uh, Dr. Brian Artis, um, who's a chiropractor, but he's become a real activist in COVID-19, lost a loved one like this to remdesivir. It's actually, it was pretty clear that remdesivir, acute kidney injury, contributed to his, to his father-in-law's death. Uh, he has proposed uh, having like a patient bill of rights and and having um, uh, directive forms in order to safeguard people away from remdesivir. I'm personally uh, not on the attack of one drug or another. Remdesivir may work actually if given very early in the course of illness and um, may be safer in some than others. But but the patient and the family ha has to be involved in the decision. Uh, I've studied kidney disease uh, my entire career, and I can tell you if somebody already has diabetes or already has some kidney disease, and then you superimpose uh, an agent that can cause kidney failure, uh, you can get in trouble pretty quickly. And, and that was my husband's case. Right. And the other point is, uh, Don, sadly, is that the ventilator doesn't save the patients. And many patients, uh, like your former husband, he died on the ventilator um, I've uh, treated patients for the last two years, similar to your husband did, probably not the same volume, but um, indeed I've lost some patients too. And, uh, I, and I've lost uh, patients and I saw it in myself. I recognized it late. Actually, I was not willing to admit that I had COVID-19 myself. And I think if there's any other point I would emphasize, because it happened to your husband, it happened to me as well, is recognize it early get a test early and realize it can happen. And even though it starts out mild, treat it intensively when it's mild. He started treatment on day five, I think you said. I ended up, mm -hmm. yeah, was it day five, Don? Or? I think it was day six. Day six. Yeah. I ended up starting on day three. I remember my wife got it. It was, she had a much more prompt recognition. She started right away. She breezed through it. I had a rougher time. Look what happened to you. You ended up in the hospital yourself and your husband loses his life. Well, this is just a heartbreaking story. I'm saddened. In fact, when I finish, I'm gonna tell my wife about it um, when I see her downstairs. Um, but do you have any final words for, for the McCullough Report audience? I think it's so important uh, that you are getting the word out because 
people, some people just don't know what's going on. And then it ends up happening to them. And we still have people dying every day in the hospital right now. And if this show can save one life, then we have done a good thing. It's just about getting the information out and your show is so important. And I think this platform is amazing. So it's, thank you for having me on. Thank you so much, Dr. Michaels for joining us. And you're right, it is about saving one life. And if we can influence one life, if this message can help one person, it's worthwhile. So thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Let's get real, let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is the McCullough Report. Thank you.